This is the Green Street News, the environmental health show with Patty and Doug Wood, your weekly look at issues that can impact your health and well-being. Welcome back. On the subject board today, how the FCC and the FDA are colluding with industry to keep the public from knowing the true risks of exposure to radiation from cell phones, tablets, baby monitors, cell towers, small cell antennas, and those unbelievably giant antennas going up all over New York City. Did you see that thing in the Times this week? Unbelievable. And you'll hear how some new laws are allowing people to sue the plastics industry for the pollution they're causing. They expect that number to grow to $20 billion in the next few years. We'll talk about the new report that shows that the U.S. has actually gotten warmer faster than other places on Earth. And finally, our guest today will talk about how the medical profession, or at least part of the medical profession, is getting ready to address the many health-related issues that will be raised over the next several decades as the full impact of climate change begins to be felt around the world. We got with us on Green Street an emergency room physician who is leading the effort to make sure our medical establishment is ready. That's all coming up on this edition of the Green Street News. Stay with us. Okay, so what have you got for us today from the news department? Well, I think that probably the most important thing is this article that was just released by ProPublica, um, written by Peter Elkind about the FCC and the FDA and the radiation from all of these wireless devices that we use on a daily basis. So yeah. actually, we had a chance to talk with Peter as he prepared this article. It takes him a long time to write articles like this. Yeah, right? we talked to him, you know, a few months, months ago. Yeah, a few months ago. Yeah. But anyway, you know, I think everyone with a smartphone should read it. I certainly am not going to read the whole thing, but I wanted to give you a flavor of the article. So Elkind writes about the quote evidence of a striking shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder partnership between a federal agency and the industry it is supposed to regulate. That sounds familiar, right? Yeah. Yeah. The build-out of a new generation of wireless networks known as 5G is amping up the stakes of this conflict for localities across America. It will require an estimated 800,000 new base stations, including both towers and densely spaced, quote, small cell transmitters mounted on rooftops and street poles. That means nearly tripling the current number of transmitters, and many of them will be placed close to houses and apartments. Okay, so I just have to stop here for a second. Has anybody seen these new antennas that are being placed in New York City? That that New York Times article about that was just... Wow. They're gigantic. They are gigantic. We have gotten calls from people. I mean, they're right outside their bedroom windows. Uh, Lower hard, East Side. Yeah. Lower East Side, that's where they... It's, the, uh, it, yeah. it's hard to imagine how big they are. Mm -mm, but whatever. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Okay. okay. So anyway, so Elkind continues, quote, the FCC is an improbable organization to serve the role of protecting humans. It specializes in technical issues that make the communication system function, not in health and safety. Edwin Mantiply, who dealt with cell phone radiation issues before retiring from the agency, that's the FCC, four years ago, says it's not their job to do this kind of thing. They might have a token biologist or two, but that's not their job. The result, Mantiply says, is that in situations where the science isn't black and white, and it isn't when it comes to cell phones, the agency tends to listen to the telecom industry, which vehemently insists that cell phones are safe. In the view of Mantiply and a rising number of scientists, there's more than enough evidence about cell phone risks to be concerned. And some of the strongest evidence comes from the federal government itself. 
In 2018, a massive nearly two-decade study by the National Toxicology Program, part of our National Institutes of Health, found clear evidence that cell phone radiation caused cancer in laboratory animals. Linda Birnbaum, who was director of the NTP until 2019, said, we're really in the middle of a paradigm shift. It's no longer right to assume cell phones are safe. We really don't need more science to know that we should be reducing exposures. So Linda Birnbaum was a guest on Green Street just a few weeks ago. And, you know, she obviously has a lot more to say than that. And, and now she can say what she, you know, what she wants since she's not a federal employee anymore. And now well, let's just talk about who she was. I mean, she was the head of the NIEHS, the National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences, which is a division of National Institutes of Health. This is not some fringe organization. Yeah. This is not, you know, people screaming in the street somewhere and, you know, a, a news broadcaster, you know, putting a, a microphone up to their face and saying, what do you think about cell phone safety? Yeah, clearly she's a very well-educated person and a real scientist. And right, and she's extremely conservative. It's yeah. not like she's, you know, she is making sure that she doesn't say a thing unless it is based on science. You know, I'm sure she's not the only one, Patty. But no, the no, no. The problem is if you want to keep your job at the FCC, you're not going to rock the boat because they have too much, the telecoms have too much yeah. power. You mm -hmm. rock the boat, you're gone. This is absolutely true. Okay. But it's really worth reading. So go to ProPublica and look for that article by Peter Elkind. It's called How the FCC Shields Cell Phone Companies from Safety Concerns. But it's not just cell phone companies. Of course, it's the entire wireless industry. industry anyway. Yeah. Okay. What else you got? All right. So this is actually a, an article that was uh, published in Environmental Health News. The title is Lawsuits Against the Plastics Industry for Health and Environmental Harm Could Exceed $20 Billion by 2030. Lawsuits against the plastics industry for health and environmental harm. Okay, it was written by Christina Marasik. Thanks to new legal pathways, people around the world could sue plastics manufacturers for health and environmental damages, totaling more than 20 billion by 2030. The report estimates that the plastics industry is costing society around 100 billion annually in environmental cleanups, ecosystem degradation, shorter life expectancy, and medical treatments. Quote, we found that the negative impacts of plastic on human health are at least as consequential as the environmental risks about plastics that tend to dominate the story, said Dominic Charles, one of the study's authors. Lawsuits related to other ubiquitous chemicals like PFAS, glyphosate, and opioids are establishing new legal avenues for plaintiffs, and these precedents could be used in legal actions against the plastics industry. Well, in the case of PFAS, these chemicals are pervasive, with many companies selling products that contain them, but only a handful of companies manufacture them, and those are the companies being sued. Mm -hmm. The story is similar when it comes to the most harmful chemicals in plastic products, the ones that are causing most of the environmental and human health problems. This is just huge. Yeah, so the know? chemicals are manufactured by only a few people. They're in everything, but they're going after the companies that are making the, the, the they're chemicals. They're going after the, the companies that are actually making the chemicals that are used in plastic. You, so You know what I found interesting about this, Patty, was that the lawsuits may reach $20 billion, but the cost annually is $100 billion. I mean, the math doesn't add up. It doesn't. So the taxpayers are footing the bill for the other $80 billion in cleanup. Yes, it's a hundred billion dollars, and those that hundred billion is is an annual number for 
environmental cleanups and ecosystem damage and also you know shorter life expectancy and medical treatments yeah. i mean we know some of these chemicals we know phthalates we know bpa we know you know these uh you know polystyrene known human carcinogens in every styrofoam container that you get Wow, it's crazy. But, you know, this, the article goes on to talk about the Shell Oil Company, which is just about to open, you know, a giant new plastics plant in the Ohio River Valley. These plastics plants will turn fracked gas into up to 1.6 million metric tons of plastic pellets every year. It's amazing. Just They're called nurdles, these little pieces of plastic. And these are the things that are shipped to all these plastic manufacturing plants. And they melt them down and they dye them and they put them through molds and extruders and they become mostly single-use packaging and plastic bags. It's amazing. So it's, it's one of five plastics plants that have been proposed in that same area, in that Ohio River Valley, but it's the only one that's gotten off the ground. Right now, it looks like none of those other four are expected to move forward. I'm surprised the investors aren't pushing back and saying, hey, you know what, give me my money back. This is not going to work. But Well, and, and on a related note, uh-oh. this is my last thing to talk okay. about. You know, and this is, a, this is titled, over the past 50 years, the U.S. has warmed 68% faster than the planet. This was in the Washington Post, and there were three authors on this, Brady Dennis, Chris Mooney, and Stephen Mufson. According to a sprawling new federal report, climate change is unleashing far-reaching and worsening calamities in every region of the United States, and the economic and human toll will only increase unless humans move faster to slow the planet's warming. The National Climate Assessment authors, who represent a broad range of federal agencies, write in the draft report, quote, the things Americans value most are at risk. Many of the harmful impacts that people across the country are already experiencing will worsen as warming increases and new risks will emerge, end quote. And then the report authors, they go on to talk about how climate-fueled disasters are becoming more costly, more common, and we're all familiar with it, right? And how the science is more clear than ever that rapid cuts in greenhouse gas emissions are needed to slow the profound changes that are already underway. Humans have pushed the climate into unprecedented territory. The interesting thing about this report is that over the past 50 years, the U.S. has warmed 68% faster than the planet as a whole. And, you know, we hear these numbers. We hear that the world has already warmed 1.1 degrees Celsius or 2 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial levels. Okay, well, what does that mean to the average person? It doesn't seem like much. 2 degrees Fahrenheit, what's the big deal? Yeah. On a planetary level, that is an incredibly big deal. I mean, it is just changing the planet in ways that we really never anticipated. I mean, yes, we anticipated, you know, the melting of, you know, the ice and the poles and so on and the rising of the ocean, but all of this unprecedented weather. As the article says, there is no known precedent for a species changing its own climate as quickly as we are changing ours, and there are many uncertainties associated with a rapidly warming world. The report also says that scientists have a quote-unquote very high confidence that climate-related hazards will continue to grow, increasing morbidity and mortality across all regions of the United States. And you know, it's not just humans who are feeling the effects. You know, rising land and water temperatures are also, you know, destroying habitats for wildlife and driving the migration of plant, bird, and fish species to higher elevations. 
So COP27 is going on in Egypt right now. Uh, and, you know, basically what it is is the corporations that run these countries are getting together and deciding how much they're going to yield of their profits. Um, meanwhile, the earth is, uh, is going through this unbelievable... And it's, this is not a surprise. It's not news to anybody. We know what's coming. We know what mass migrations could mean, and we're going to talk about this in a little while. But, yeah. you know... The, anybody, anybody listening to us right now should understand that their children, if they're young children and their grandchildren, are going to live in a very different world. Yeah. And it's not going to be an easy world for them to live in. And what can an individual do? You know, conserve energy. Just conserve energy. Remember Jimmy Carter getting on, on the TV and wearing his sweater, turning your, your heat down a cup, just a couple of degrees and putting on a sweater. So, I mean, that makes a difference if everybody does it. Yeah. The other thing is that we can all plant trees. I know that sounds like a really simple and crazy thing, but trees are critical, critical to mitigate this warming of our planet. Just keep doing it because, you know, we are just losing this incredible resource that helps keep our planet cooler by absorbing CO2. Okay. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Climate change is upon us. It's changing the way we live and the way we think about the future. No one will escape the consequences of this massive global temperature shift or the fundamental changes it will bring to the world as we and our ancestors have known it since human life on Earth began. No longer do we hear serious men or women deny the inevitable change that is already occurring or claim there's nothing to worry about. Instead, governments and the big corporations that run them are beginning to make plans for addressing the issues that will come to the forefront over the next several decades. How will we deal with the massive migration of people away from the parts of the world that will become uninhabitable because of severe heat or rising water? How will we feed billions of people if weather patterns change agricultural yields or storms ruin crops before the harvest? What will we do if sources of water that have sustained populations for generations suddenly begin to run dry? These are all questions that we will inevitably have to answer. And part of that answer is that we need to begin to plan now. That's true for governments, companies, and individuals. And as our guest today points out, it's also true for doctors. I am an emergency physician and very interested in wilderness medicine, which is how you take care of people in remote and austere places. That's Dr. Jay Lemery, professor of emergency medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, chief of the section of wilderness and environmental medicine and faculty in the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health at the Colorado School of Public Health. Wilderness medicine is the practice of improvising care for patients when you're in a remote area, you have limited resources and manpower, and evacuation to a hospital or other care facility is not immediately possible. It's thinking on your feet and thinking outside the box. Early in his career, Dr. Lemery saw a connection between wilderness medicine and the kind of medicine that might be required as climate change begins to impact our lives. This was in the mid-2000s, and along the way, it was sort of that first round of the science bashing or the obfuscation of science or the politicization of it. And I began to really take issue with that because 
I thought, you know, we can debate policy. That that's fair, but we really can't debate the science underlying it because then we're all just stupid. Mobilizing the medical community is not a job for the faint of heart. Doctors are, by and large, a proud and distinguished group, not generally prone to political action or alarmism. Dr. Lemery found some pushback from his colleagues. I began to see climate change and human health as a policy extension of wilderness medicine. And through that mechanism, began to think we need more physician engagement to really clarify these risks and understand where the health impacts are coming from. And when I started to inquire about this, I realized that there weren't many people involved, you know, a handful of people. And I was shocked. And then the more I sort of got into it, the more I realized there's a ton of work to be done. This is going to be a very big deal. And uh, we have got to get the, the clinical community mobilized. But Jay Lemery wasn't giving up. He just had to convince doctors to think about themselves in a different way. Physicians are type A people in general. That's how they sort of got to where they got. And type A people don't like to speak about things, certainly in public, that they are not fully in control of. The mass, they're not have, have mastery over the content. And so my response to them was, okay, I get it, you know, but the science is there. This is just another thing to learn that, you know, we can talk about, just like you talk about smoking or a diet uh, or wear your seatbelt. You don't have to be a board certified emergency physician to talk about wearing a helmet when you ride your bicycle, right? It, it was encouraging them to reach out and think of themselves as a custodian of our communities and families' health rather than a person who, you know, looks at retinas all day or just takes care of neonates. It wasn't something that most people had been thinking about and wasn't wasn't considered mainstream. And because it had been politicized, that there was a risk of their own blowback. And like, what if what if people, you know, come at me and say, you know, this is wrong. Nobody wants to be accused of being wrong, especially doctors. They have to be right about things or the consequences could be fatal. So Jay Lemery pressed on with his quest to get the medical community prepared for what he believes will be an increasing demand for doctors who can deal with the effects of climate change on people. And that begins in medical school. What we want to do is we want to scale up a healthcare workforce that's savvy in this, these multifaceted issues. So, you know, you think about where does that start? You think about in medical school. Now, the med school curriculum is very crowded. There's so much these students need to learn in four years. Certainly, this should be a part of it, right? There should be some fluency in this. It's not just pure health. It's not just how does climate change affect the human body. We've got to think about resilient communities and energy choices and disaster response and how our hospital systems stay resilient. And then, you know, also having facility about some of these larger issues where displacement and uh, food insecurity uh, and extreme weather events, you know, that are going to happen, right? So what we're trying to do is be able to give those clinicians the ability to raise their hand and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm the person who can lead the health conversation within their own 
healthcare system or unit and things like that, but also raise their fists to be able to call out policymakers when they claim that, you know, wind farms caused the Texas power grid to fail, you know, the couple winters ago, right? And to say, you know what, that's, that's actually not true. No doctor now has any training in any of that, right? So unless you've learned it, you can't possibly, you can suspect it's, you know, um, not true, but you really can't say it with any confidence until you actually understand, you know, a little bit about carbon accounting and energy flows and some of that stuff. So again, it's not to make them an expert in any of this, but it's to give them fluency to be able to put all these complicated factors together in a fluent, you know, synthesized vision of climate change and how it's affecting our health. We're bringing in folks that are communications experts for course one, which is um, the foundations. For course two, we look at healthcare systems and hospitals. So we're partnering with Healthcare Without Harm and Practice Green Health, right? These are the people that are really experts in this. And we're bringing in disaster experts from FEMA and other schools that have really advanced disaster training, but we're contextualizing in terms of climate. So we're partnering with them. And then, government organizations and think tanks to sort of get us at the end to think about larger global issues, you know, mass migrations from uh, climate movement, and then, you know, issues of food insecurity and what that means for the global South and things like that. So, you know, what we're really doing is we're tapping into expertise. You know, you go out and find the people that know it and that's how you put the curriculum together. A few months ago, we had a show on Green Street about wet bulb temperature. It was something that came up during the 2020 Summer Olympics in Japan, where certain events had to be moved or run at different times because of the temperature and humidity. It was the first time we had heard the term wet bulb temperature used in a discussion besides one on climate change. And it's one we should all get used to, because it will soon be a regular feature of weather forecasts around the world. Wet bulb temperature is something Jay Lemery is thinking about, too. It's heat and humidity and sun radiation. And when those three things, so you think about the middle of the day in a very hot and humid place, that's a big deal. And we particularly are worried about worker health. They're very vulnerable. And that's a very specific group that, you know, they're looking at to think about, you know, it's it's agricultural workers who are outside in these hot, humid areas. And at some point, we know, and, and the predictions the models tell us this, that there are points of the year which will be increasingly growing where it's physically impossible for the human body to cool off. And that's all measured by a wet bulb. So without external means of cooling, right? So a fan or air conditioning or um, you know other external means, being outside in and of itself uh, is, is lethal. And what's so scary about this is that, you know, the projections tell us that it doesn't happen sort of in a stepwise manner, right? Where at first, you know, you see people getting sick. It's one of those things where everyone's fine. And then once you exceed those wet bulb parameters where physiologically you can't cool off the body, that's when we're going to see a lot of mortality happen at once in some of these urban settings. So that's, that's, that's something that's kind of like a doomsday scenario. And it's going to happen in, you know, vulnerable places where it's hot and humid at baseline and uh, with idiosyncratic weather patterns where there's maybe extreme heat, uh, unprecedented with a uh, insecure power grid, right? So then there's a lack of power or there's a, a blackout. And that's what, um, that's what worries, you know, people studying this. 
Urban areas with large expanses of concrete and asphalt will be especially hit hard by rising temperatures. You know, blacktop paved space holds heat more intensely and longer. So they're hotter areas during the day, right? Because it just, all that macadam absorbs heat. Um, and this is not a mystery to anybody. If you walk from a park across a parking lot, you can, you can sense on a very hot day, right? You can sense how much hotter the parking lot is. And then at night it holds heat longer. So it doesn't cool off at night. So these areas with no shade, without green space are just plain baseline hotter. And studies have shown during heat waves, they actually hold even more heat. A few weeks ago, we spoke with Dr. Andy Reinman of Hunter College about the importance of trees and the ability of tree canopy to shade and therefore cool large areas in cities where otherwise the exposed hard surfaces would become heat sinks. He cautioned us that in some urban areas, adding trees might be seen as gentrifying a neighborhood and lead to increased real estate values, raising rents for people who live in nearby apartments. The problems of planting trees and how that changes the real estate economics, I mean, I get that. And that's why it's so important that these are multifaceted solutions, right? We can't just allow the marketplace to solve it because some things are not motivated by the market, right? We've got to make sure that these are uh, sensible policies in place to allow people to stay there. You know, the last thing you want to do is plant trees and then kick out people from their own neighborhood. But at the same point, we need trees, right? We need green space because that means their com communities will be more resilient, particularly in extreme heat events. That's so important uh, for health. Heat can kill. And it's not just people ask me all the time, like how many, you know, heat strokes are you seeing, you know, when it's hot here? You know, it's just, you don't see heat strokes, you can, but we generally don't. What we see are exacerbations of chronic disease. You know, walk across a parking lot on a hot day and feel your pulse. It's gonna go up 10, 15, 20 beats because your body begins to start sweating and you start to breathe heavier. Now for the young and healthy, not a problem. It's just a physiologic response. It's normal, you start sweating. But for those that are on diuretics for congestive heart failure or on oxygen for COPD or maybe have a pre-existing cardiovascular disease, that physiologic stressor across, you know, millions of people is enough to push significant amounts of them over the edge. And the problem here is, is that we don't always know, right? Because they come in to see me in the emergency room and we code their chart. ICD-10 code would code it as, you know, chest pain, shortness of breath, um, you know, exacerbation of a chronic disease. For instance, we don't code hottest day of the year. They were doing fine until they, you know, got on and walked across the parking lot. So the attribution science is still lacking and we can't always put two and two together. Of course, we have to, and we must do this because we need that data to influence policy. It's just that data is elusive. Dr. Jay Lemery, Professor of Emergency Medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, Chief of the Section of Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, and Faculty in the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health at the Colorado School of Public Health. You can learn more about Dr. Lemery's groundbreaking program at www.coloradowm.org. That's coloradowm.org. 
That's going to do it for this edition of the Green Street News. Tune in or download the program next week to stay up to date on the latest environmental news and interviews with people who are making a difference. Thanks for listening. Thank you.